Welcome to TDS Lowdown. My name is Henrik Setra, and in this episode we dive into questions related to how machines can guide and shape and manipulate us. Today's guest, Gri Hasselbach, has also referred to these machines as destiny machines, and we will soon hear why. But knowledge is power. Scientia potentia est, as Thomas Hobbes once wrote. And data, some say, is also power. Data is constantly likened to the new oil, as it is drilled, mined and refined in what some refer to as the data economy. Regardless of how one views this metaphor, the fact that data is valuable seems to be beyond dispute, and personal data in particular is highly attractive. The fact that most of the services we use every day and every hour, every minute and at times every second of our lives is free is testimony to this. But if knowledge is indeed power, having someone's personal data gives actors power over others. As I argued in several articles in the past, massive amounts of data combined with AI and new levels of computing power creates the foundation of manipulation and what I refer to as secret coercion. By using in-depth knowledge of a person, algorithms could in theory be used to predict our behavior. And prediction of various futures and reactions of ours, in turn, allows those with data to guide us, to shape us, and to forcefully influence our behavior. Or at least, so I have argued. While some influence from others is arguably unavoidable, many are now saying that the influence exerted through big data and AI is too effective and a source of major concern. Today, we'll be diving into these issues. So let's get going. So, uh, today's guest is uh, Gri Hasselbalk, uh, located in Denmark. Gri is a doctor and a scholar of online human rights, digital ethics, responsible innovation and technological transformation. She's a co-founder and research director at the think tank uh, Data Ethics, and she has just released a new book, Data Ethics of Power, which we will talk about a bit later. Her site, uh, Mediamocracy, is where I found an article that caught my interest, which is why I had to talk to Gri. And that is where we begin. And um, yeah, first, welcome, Gri. Nice to have you on the podcast. Well, thank you, and, and thank you for having me here. Of course. It was a very interesting article, and the reason it came up was because a lot of people are talking about these things now, right? This is kind of an urgent issue for many people right now. Mm. And then your article from 2015 said pretty much what people are saying right now, right? Which is why it's always fun to bring up some old things, uh, old in quotes, Mm. because they might be a few years old, but quite often they kind of hit the mark and things haven't really changed that fundamentally since then. So if you go into this a bit, let's start with the quote from the article. Our destiny is a product. Fate is developed upon and innovated with. Fate is part of an actual machinery. It can be sold and traded with. Fate is something that the destiny machine produces. So what is this thing you refer to as a destiny machine? Well, I, I mean, I think you can see it in, in two ways. So of course, there's something very concrete, uh, destiny machines, like particular kinds of systems and products and services that are designed with algorithms to predict human behavior or life and to understand our future. And, and of course, these are based on this kind of accumulation of data and then designed to act or to, to predict um, based on this data and, and help us predict, to, to uh, act on these predictions. So we have uh, things like, uh, you can take like a very concrete example from our everyday life is like recommendation and personalization systems on things that we use every day, like uh, Google uh, search or Netflix or Spotify that helps us to choose what kind of movies we use and predict what we would like next. Um, and and uh, the way I look at it is of course, this first kind is that they are specifically designed to to create what I call machine readable people um, and to to produce in a way to understand us and how we're going to act and what we will like and and um, in a way also pointing us and guiding us in specific specific um, directions and then the second thing that I think is really important that we 
tend to forget when we get all like emerged and looking at these tiny specific services, specific products uh, um, that are based on these big data with algorithms and things. Then there's also uh, a different thing is that I think is is these kind of processes, mindsets, these cultures that we can call uh, that I also refer to as the society of the destiny machine, which is uh, a sort of dominant design business and science and innovation culture where um, in a way it's based on this big data mindset. We collect and we, we need as much data as possible in order to create uh, these destinies and, and create these predictions. Uh, we need a programmable life where we can understand everything and mitigate uh, potential risks. And, and this, I mean, as, as you know, a political scientist or sociologist, most of us, we know uh, people like Anthony Giddens and, and Ulrich Beck, who talks about the risk society, which I think is a really good framework to put this into in this second cluster that I'm talking about, where we have, you know, one side, we have the end result of these modernization processes, and we have, we have this, um, you could say, uh, you know, uh, we've, we've created some risks, uh, or in modernity, some risk has been created. We talk about the environment and, and the climate change and things like this, and now we have this a moment of mitigation of risks. So we're very preoccupied with handling all these risks in society. And then there's the other side where we have this, instead of focusing on, and that's very much what I put into the term destiny machine, instead of focusing on, there's a temporal aspect of this, instead of having this focus on the moment, the present, the past, we have this preoccupation with the future. So, uh, everything we do has to be designed to fit and to be utilized for the future. And so, so these two sides of it, these very concrete products, these very concrete services that we make use of, these very concrete uh, ways of doing things in businesses can be combined with this overall culture that is preoccupied with the future and preoccupied with with maybe even turning everything into a risk or turning everything into something that can um, make sense in terms of a future moment. Hmm. Yeah, this is, this is very interesting. And this, I'm reading uh, Jack Alul, uh, The Technological Society, once again, uh, right now. And that goes, uh, as I hear you now, as to kind of some of the same base, right? That technology is more than mechanics and more than the material aspects. It's also how we organize our societies and ourselves. And kind of this dynamic between kind of what the machine does and expects and kind of how we expect and kind of strive to make machines fit the machine, uh, kind of humans fit the machines. So that's correct, understanding you that this is kind of related to that sort of Thinking? Yeah, the only thing is that Jack Lula is, of course, very tech determinist mm. uh, in the sense that, um, I mean, the destiny machines are, of course, uh, they have some kind of agency themselves in terms of uh, we create social technical systems where there are elements or nodes of this where we are, where life has been organized according to these. But of course, it's also in, in a kind of dialogic relation with this uh, cultural aspect or, or this uh, kind of as I said, historical moment uh, that is the result of modernization processes and these things. So I think we have to see all of this as, and that's also how I like to approach uh, social technical evolutions is that they're in constant dialogue between different agencies. Uh, so you have the agency of human agency, we have society, we have culture, we have uh, design, we have historical moments that are all um, in somehow in a dialogue, no? Yeah. So that And at the end, we have then the society of the destiny machine in the end, which is the dominant culture. Yeah, exactly. And this would be kind of a, a, a typical closing question, but let's do it here since you kind of mentioned technical determinism, because it sounds then like you disagree with this. So you mean, you feel that we have some sort of power to shape the destiny machines as well they don't just shape us right that's what you're saying now yeah i think that's that's where the cultural element comes in mm. no and i think one of the key things and that's also why i'm very preoccupied with what i call the human approach but which is in policy very often called the human-centric approach to mm. ai for example um because the 
the idea is here that uh, if we are actually reflective of some of these developments and, and the, the, in particular the, the power dynamics of a society like this, if we can be reflective, if we can understand our own history, if we can understand the kind of controversies between different interests that are invested in a society like this, then we can also we also have the power um, as a humanity, as a shared as a collective force to, to change the direction of how, for example, a development uh, that I, of course, when I call a society of the destiny machine, it's, of course, not a very positive depiction. Mm. I think there are things that needs to change and we need to guide that change somehow. Um, and I do think that we do have the power to change things as humans. And there's something very particular about the humanity uh, that make us, makes us capable of doing something like that. Yeah. Um, your faith in politics, uh, you are kind of relatively involved in politics as far as I'm concerned in terms of kind of engaging with politics. So that means you also have some faith in politics, right? That uh, politics has a key role to play here. Yeah, I mean, when I say co governance, though, I, I think there's different aspects. One is the kind of very, um, the legal process, uh, uh, creating, you know, democracy, democratic institutions, creating uh, laws uh, in democratic societies. And, and the way that you can as a as both governments or intergovernmental organizations, how they can shape things. And as you say, I'm myself, I've been very involved, for example, in the high level group on AI mm. uh, that they made the ethics guidelines um, for the EU and that are incorporated in the, the new AI Act. So I think there's a big uh, there's a big power in that uh, where you can have different forces that uh, that negotiate different laws and then create different kind of um, uh, institutionalized frameworks for how we do, but there's so uh, how we do things. But but there's also other forms of governance that I have a lot of faith in. So so we have, uh, for example, technological cultures, mm. um, ways of doing science and innovation, um, and ways of uh, creating the technologies we do that can be uh, shaped in certain ways. Uh, and of course, it's not. Um, it's not, you know, science, I don't have to tell anyone that knows about this field, is that it's not a neutral act. We have different ways of doing science, different ways of creating technologies that are invested with different cultures and different ways of doing things. Mm. And, um, and of course, uh, this is a very important aspect of governance as well, the technological cultures of how we build things. Part of this is also standards. Uh, you have education as a form of governance as well, the way we use technologies and what we know about them mm. uh, and what we demand from the technologies we have in our everyday lives. No? Mm. Yeah. So all of these together, if you put all of these things together, you, you do, we do have a form of power. Yeah. And I think the greatest form of power is probably then when we get together around uh, you know, shared narratives. Um, so, mm. so we've seen that before in history, after the Second World War, where we had very like-minded countries that got around and together around the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, for example, mm. um, saying, okay, there's a clash between uh, different ways of different interests, different values of doing things. How do we resolve this? Yeah. And, yeah, and then that's definitely relevant right now. If you look at Wired, for example, the magazine, I don't know if you noticed, but they kind of explicitly stated uh, a month or so ago that they are kind of changing direction, right? Because they are taking in the fact that people are more skeptical of technology than they used to be. So they have kind of relatively radically changed their narrative. And that kind of reflects a more general development, I'd say. And this connects to what yeah. you're saying here, I'd, I'd assume. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've seen this development. You have to think that I, I was, I've been in this field for a very long time. I used to be also involved in a kind of the privacy field and the human rights online in the internet governance uh, communities. Um, and, and you probably remember that uh, like before we had the general data protection regulation, uh, it was very common to say, for example, that privacy is an obstacle mm. to innovation. Yeah. Uh, it's something that I worked against. I created a network at the Internet Governance Forum called uh, Privacy as Innovation. Mm. So saying that, you know, take a different narrative, mm. start from the point of view that we can actually innovate based on this, right? It's not an obstacle. Thinking of it as an obstacle is an... <clears throat> is, um, 
is uh, is one narrative mm. and i've seen how that narrative has developed and it's not only developed because of the gdpr it has developed because as you say people are asking for different things uh, they're starting to worry they see how things are working contrary to uh, their individual rights or their ability to move freely or do things uh, uh, with uh, kind of one kind of form of uh, at least, if not independent agency, then kind of democratic agency, the balance of democracy has been challenged. Mm. And so we're starting now, and I see that very much in the AI field uh, on a global level. We had the conversation for many years now in, in, in Europe. And I mean, today it's very common to see uh, uh, both politicians and normal people to speak out and also academic to speak out against uh, big tech giants, uh, for example, Facebook, Google and these that wasn't common before. Uh, it wasn't, I, I, and believe me, I've been in the field for a long time. Mm. It was, you know, you had to, to not, uh, you know, state uh, this kind of um, critical agency agency. It wasn't popular to be that critical. And now it's very popular. So it's, it's a narrative that's changing now. Yeah, exactly. And if you go back to the destiny machines a bit, uh, let's see, uh, if we go back to the kind of notion of trying to predict and understand human behavior, uh, predict what humans will do. That is kind of, some would say that it's kind of the base, the base uh, activity of uh, advertising, for example, right? Marketing and advertising for a long time. Vance Packard wrote of the People Shapers a long time ago, and he described a kind of a tendency for them to gather much more data, know people more intimately in order to shape them, right? And do this. Mm. So it's, it's not really a brand new phenomenon as I see it. It's a relatively... A long time coming phenomenon. Mm. So, why? Uh, what? What's new as you see it? Is is it new now? Is it, has something changed? Mm, I don't. Wouldn't say it's it's new in the sense that it's a radical uh, new transformation of things. I think it's the end result of. And when you refer to to advertisement, I have to go back to you know the roots of uh, you know the the what uh, you know advertisement is no it, it is a kind of the result or it's an expression of the capitalist logic no so so if you want to look at that it in that i think we can look at the society of the destiny machine as you say there's nothing there's not too much new in that concept apart from the idea that we have different kind of technologies uh, that are that are emphasizing and reinforcing some of these kind of logics mm. uh, and some of this culture. If you want to put it in a more general framework, I think, and if you read back in literature and you look at the kind of different clashes, uh, clashes of, um, again, we could talk about different narratives, we could talk about different technological cultures, we could think about different ideological systems, but then I think the most, uh, the best analysis is the one that combines the kind of understanding the society we're in right now in terms of the, the a, a clash, uh, an end result of a combination of the capitalist logic and this, this kind of utilitarian mechanistic scientific view of, of, of the world uh, that has been, uh, was very influential in, in, in science. But has also been challenged uh, very much by early uh, 20th century philosophers, for example, someone like Henry Bergson that I talked about. No? Yeah. So we have everything that is designed to make sense in this kind of machinery of these different kind of cultures and logics that are embedded in the institutions of our society, in the way we create uh, socio-technical systems, the way the, the products, the services we design, um, very much connected to the second part of that destiny machine argument that I talked about mm. before. So there is very concrete products and services we can look at that are destiny machines as such. And then there's a logic behind or a model, uh, a culture behind also. Mm. And, and if you connect this to another kind of long time uh, phenomenon, behaviorism, uh, Shoshana Zuboff, for example, connects this to behaviorism quite quite explicitly, right? So that kind of surveillance mm -hmm. capitalism is based on kind of extreme behaviorism in a sense, radical behaviorism. Uh, what sort of term do you prefer to describe the socio-technical system that you're uh, kind of that we're talking about right now? Some talk of the data economy, some talk of surveillance capitalism, platform capitalism, all these various mm. terms. Do you have a preferred term here? 
Oh yeah, I do. Um, and it's very much connected with the kind of background I have. In I, I think one of the the people who have been characterizing and have been describing this, and who's not, I don't understand actually why this is not the key also in this field. But that's David Leon, of course, mm. who's been working on this since the nineties. And, and he talks about, and together with Sigmund Baumann, the sociologist, um, he talks about, uh, they talk together about, well, they did, uh, unfortunately, it's the late Sigmund Baumann now, um, they talked about something called liquid surveillance, no? Mm. Um, and that's a different kind of, uh, and, and the reason why I find this relevant is, of course, the the analytical tool I use and that I also use in my book is uh, is the concept of power, which is makes a lot of sense to any sociologist or political scientist, but I don't think it's been used that explicitly as the kind of material that we make and base our analysis on. And so if we take something like power and how it's transformed within uh, the society of the destiny the machine or the surveillance society, as David Lean calls it, mm. then... Um, then it has a very particular form compared to with previous forms of power. So something like that Super talks about, I think uh, it's very identifiable. You know, there's some key actors, uh, some key power dominant actors that are actually guiding the power relations that are in charge of the power dynamics. I think the reason why David Leon and, and, and Bauman are so good to to use as this kind of framing of this debate is that they talk about a kind of power that is uh, is difficult to identify it's much more uh, it's fundamentally um it's it's reinforced within particular structures of power um, that could be so you could basically have any kind of dominant actor uh, um making use of or, or taking or dominating this system but it would it's much more difficult because it's a decentralized system of power mm. so you so so it's difficult to identify and it's difficult to to actually mitigate those kind of power relations unless you kind of go directly into the system and try to to make some institution or some structural changes and that's actually what we need when we talk about governance uh, and if we want to change the direction of, uh, again, the society of the destiny machine. Yeah. Power is central to your work, as reflected in the title of your book as well. So we'll get back to that a little bit. I could also kind of recommend the readers to have a look at Faridun Satarov's uh, Technology and Power, which is kind of a relatively interesting, or it is an interesting uh, account of kind of how, um, different forms of power and how to manifest through technology. I'll put up a link in the description. Um, so, um, one interesting aspect of the article as well is that you talk of fate and you talk of destiny and you talk of all these kind of terms that may be a, lit a bit strange to kind of very modern secularized people, right? They just have this almost kind of mystical quality to kind of what is fate, what is destiny. So, why do you use these terms rather than relatively kind of simpler and straightforward, kind of more scientific, uh, behaviorist story, and that are what, what you'd like kind of terms? So, what's the key basis and foundation of this vocabulary? Well, of course, again, I'm using a narrative, no? and and uh, a narrative is 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 also full of metaphors mm. uh, to make uh, people actually understand what this means. And the reason why I'm using this mystical, because it has a history as well. But if we think uh, about other times in history when we've had faith uh, without really, you know, questioning our faith, and we've had this mysticism. Uh, we have faith in in religion and gods, uh, for example, um, and and one of the key things with this is, of course, the the, the level of agency uh, you have uh, when you trust, put your trust in something. The idea that uh, that I think is that there is this kind of almost there has been, and that's also following the the debate and the development. There has been this kind of almost religious faith in. Silicon Valley, I would say, uh, as the uh, you know the 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 main um, kind of cultural uh, signifier, the main um, dominant uh, idea of the role between technologies and humans, and the way to do innovation, for example. So I remember a time when. Uh, 
when you would, would be considered to be even, you know, an old fashioned dinosaur, if you thought that uh, privacy was relevant to consider, because that was contrary to the big data innovation um, ideas that would come out of Silicon Valley. Mm. Um, and so, so I think the reason why I use these terms is, of course, to um, to go back to this idea that, uh, and that, that that was also very much when we used to have, you know, the very much more religious, <coughs> sorry, no. societies, mm. at least in the Western uh, world. Um, you would put your faith in the church or you would put your faith in uh, in a God without questioning uh, because God and the church is always right. Mm. Um, and that's kind of a tendency that I've seen in this, uh, at least the business and the innovation part of you put your faith in Silicon Valley without questioning what are the ideas, what are the interests, uh, what is the underlying logic behind uh, creating services like this. Mm. Um, so I think that's why, um, and then of course there's this mysticism around AI, for example, um, yeah. AI that can change the world or we don't even question if it's even that, um, if it even has those capabilities to uh, um, to transform society and the world in the way that it is being promised to us, no? No, exactly. And that was, uh, yeah, that's part of the previous episode as well. We talked about AI hype in particular, which is mm. kind of relatively strong. But if you go into, yeah, yeah, so if you go into kind of fate and destiny and we go on to what you uh, suggested yourself, kind of the God aspect here, kind of the religious aspect and take it to the full, right? And you talk about Silicon Valley and having faith in Silicon Valley. Um, would you think that we have faith in kind of the entrepreneurs, that we have faith in the persons or the companies or the system or is this some kind of faith in the algorithmic god that ai has become so kind of capable that we should simply trust even if we don't understand its predictions and suggestions because it it is kind of sort of our yeah our contemporary god right so uh, let's just trust trust because it's so good and it's better than Mm. it's so good that we can't really fathom right we can we can't really understand or comprehend how it arrives at its fantastical predictions or suggestions so is that kind of in algorithms or in the system or in higher actors depends on from what angle you see it from if you if you look at from uh, for example there is this concept of machine ethics for example Mm. where the idea is that that uh, we are so flawed as humans uh, in our biases and and there is some kind of uh, uh, a objective alternative, a fair alternative to human bias, mm. and that we can find and we can develop within machines. Uh, and basically, if we if we use machines, we can fix the human bias. Mm. Excuse me. Mm. Um, and and I think in that way, there is a chance that there is, you know, there is that kind of faith. Of course, uh, I'm deeply and openly, honestly, humanist. So I, of course, have a different view. Mm. Uh, But, um, and it's not as, you know, as, you know, extreme. I do also think that we can use technologies and we can use AI to kind of uh, use it as tools to support, for example, a judge in creating a a decision in a court. You can use it to AI to go through uh, previous cases and guide the judge. Mm. Um, but but there are these kind of there are as I said almost religious beliefs in what uh, AI can do for us uh, in this area, and I think that is a bias in itself, of course, uh, mm. because we do not have an objective technology, we do not have a a, a, a fair system. There's no systems. Uh, I mean, AI is biased by itself in thinking that uh, there is a kind of quantitative, uh, quantifiable reality that can be reduced into data and and we can create some kind of result out of that it's like a mathematical bias no mm. yeah so. yeah and it, yeah and if you go back to the kind of yeah, the, the, this connects to determinism as well in some sense at least uh, not necessarily but a bit and then you also say uh, we were into that kind of that uh, you are non-determinist and say that we have some 
uh, opportunities here, alternatives here. And you say that our last, in the article you say, our last stand as humans is to seek unpredictability, to seize free will and rejection of produced destinies, right? So that's kind of mirrors to kind of, we need to do something. We can't just accept these destinies that produced for us, right? Do you have any kind of ideas on how do we get there? What's your kind of preferred avenue of action? How do we kind of pre, how do we grasp this kind of opportunity to rebel against the destinies that we are presented? Well, I said, I mean, I'm very, very constructive and concrete with this because that's something I work with uh, in terms of thinking about these things. I also work with it very concretely in, 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 in EU and, and, and beyond also. Um, so I think there's uh, there's different things we can do. As I, I talked about it before, about uh, like the combination of governance approaches that we need. Mm. So we need uh, there's three key things that I think that we have to work on here. Uh, and basically, the aim of our work is to to include uh, um, these uh, kind of critical agencies of humans or the human impact within technical processes. So. Um, we can do things with the technology, the way we design a human agency, for example, into technology. So take concrete examples of, for example, we're talking right now about uh, the personal data stores uh, where you have, you build data infrastructures where humans can, or we can uh, get access to our data and we can take out our data and we have control our, over our data. So that's kind of one uh, way, an example. Mm. Then there's the legal um, aspect. So we, of course, need to frame these processes in law. Uh, Frank Pascali talks about uh, defending human expertise. So creating legal frameworks that defend human expertise, which I think is a really good way of putting it. Mm. Um, so we have some very concrete things going on in Europe. The GDPR, there's a very good example, Article 22, where uh, you have the right not to be subject to a decision based only on automatic processing. Mm. Uh, and that includes profiling, for example. Uh, the new uh, Data Governance Act uh, will have proposal, new proposal coming out in February, February now, um, which was proposed last year by the European Commission, where they're talking about different kinds of data sharing infrastructures, where you have intermediation services. Uh, they they talk about a little bit like in the spirit of this personal data store movement, where you can take out data, you can donate data, you can take back data, and things like this. Mm. And then there's the third aspect, which is this. Um, uh, the cultural aspect, as I talked before, the mindsets, the the way we build technologies and the overall, which I would also say the overall narratives of what we do. And and what I think, what I see right now is that there is still, it was much more unbalanced before, but there is a competition uh, between different ways of doing technologies, different beliefs in, in what technology should do for us. Uh, so there is, for example, if I have to be very explicit about it, there is a very strong transhumanist uh, tradition also in in, mm. in, uh, in Silicon Valley that is basically thinking that we are just outdated software. Uh, it's actually, I've heard that been said <laughs> specifically uh, um, by someone like Ray Kurzweil. Mm. Um, uh, and... and at some point we might just you know give up on all those old-fashioned ideas we have about privacy about uh, about uh, human dynamic qualities uh, about uh, that even human bias sometimes can be used uh, we can use it for for good if we're reflective about it no mm. because we can be controversial and we can uh, can uh, argue about each other's bias while uh, you know AI systems would never argue their own bias. They would just uh, mm. have a bias, you know? They wouldn't doubt it. That's, uh, that's another Louisa Moore that uh, talks about algorithms. They never doubt themselves. Yeah. So there is this kind of competition right now. So we really need to, to, be sure, to be very reflective and very, I don't know why we're not more transparent about these very clashing narratives about what role technology should play in our lives as yeah. either tools or as you know, updating our very flawed uh, software. No? Yeah, definitely. And that brings to me kind of what you're saying here is kind of three scenarios. You have the transhumanist that we can use data. You can use data, uh, not just data, but technology kind of driven 
uh, progress uh, into kind of bettering ourselves and our societies. Uh, or we could do the kind of more status quo oriented uh, variety where we kind of seek data driven growth and we have the national strategies for kind of AI for data economy and kind of data sharing, all these things that is more based on kind of harnessing data for good, right? More about the harnessing it for the societal goods, hopefully also human good, but also kind of economic growth and these things, but with an aspect of getting control of data to a kind of an acceptable level. But the third uh, scenario would be kind of something akin to what environmental ethicists, for example, talk about as degrowth, for example. If you use that kind of notion of a more radical scenario, that discusses kind of, okay, we have, might have to kind of reject certain technologies. We might have to scale back. We might have to kind of refuse certain or kind of yeah, abstain from certain kinds of benefits and services and say that we don't want that amount of data out there, even if it might be good for economic growth. But that's kind of the more radical notion that I kind of find myself uh, leaning into yeah. more and more. But that's kind of the more radical mm-hmm. option. Well, what do you think about kind of that getting control of this monster or destiny machine uh, rather than kind of scaling it back and kind of more radically opposing it? What would be Mm. your comments on that? I think there are areas where we definitely need, do not need uh, more data and do not need, uh, uh, I mean, AI is not the solution for everything. And there is areas where it's even very problematic to use uh, AI. You know, we can think of things like social scoring of families, Mm. Uh, we've seen that even in Denmark, uh, uh, proposals for uh, creating, uh, you know, profiling systems uh, to make risk indicators of families to protect children and 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 detect, uh, you know, exposed children, but at the same time, uh, with a very uh, problematic outcome in terms of what kind of society you create. Mm. You know? And so there's things like this. Uh, there's areas uh, in terms of facial recognition where I do think that. Even the thing of asking to use it in certain situations will also mean that that we are creating an infrastructure where we will always be able to be identified, where where there is no kind of freedom uh, in terms of uh, you know space to to think or or be free from from surveillance. Mm-hmm. No? So I th- I think there's several things where, and I think every single. Um, what we have to think of every time, and that's that's again uh, that kind of uh, two-sided coin or two sides of the destiny machine is that every single little product or service, uh, li- every little destiny machine we create uh, will also be part of this general culture that we're creating, uh, and and in the end also uh, you know intensifying this society of the destiny machine. And of course, as I said again, I have a negative perception perception of the destiny, the society of the destiny machine. I I that's my uh, kind of uh, narrative of warning about the society that we are moving into. Um, and so we have to think every time we create any of those little destiny machines. Uh, are they going to be part of this uh, society of the destiny machine? Will they contribute to this or will they actually help balance it? Uh, you know, will we create a, a service? Um, should we not create a service or will we create a service that actually incorporates this, what I'm saying, human agency and maybe pull it towards a different kind of towards a human society, much more human society, less, less predictable, less programmed, more dynamic, uh, more capable of uh, critical agency, more democratic in many senses also, because that is what de- democracy about. One of the key things about democracy and as any political scientist know is also the balance of power. Mm. But very much uh, the key thing is, and that's basic to our fundamental rights framework and human rights framework is the idea of critical agency of citizens. Mm. No? And, and, and in a society of the distant machine, there's no... Uh, In the end, we will have no critical uh, democracy Mm. in any sense, because we'll have a a programmable society. It might run smoothly, but it might (laughs) not be um, as democratic as we would like it to. I can think of many uh, Mm. societies uh, that runs very smoothly, but uh, are not democratic, no? Mm. Yeah, definitely. Uh, before we end, I'd also like to get get into your book because um, it's called Data Eth- Ethics of Power, right? And that relates to what we're talking about here because it is about the use of data. And um, the subtitle is, as you said, also a human approach in the big data and AI era. 
Can you tell us a little bit about this book? And could you also tell us what data ethics means? Because people are talking about kind of technology ethics, uh, robot ethics, machine ethics, computer ethics. There are different sort of ethics, right? So when you say data ethics mm-hmm. of power, what do you refer to? And what is this book about? Yeah, well, it, it's very connected to what we're talking about right now. So, I mean, basically my book is about, it is, as you say, about data ethics, but it's also about governance. And it's about, as I said before, this kind of transformation of power uh, that we see right now in this kind of society where we have uh, uh, very much driven by big data and AI technologies and developments like this. Um but also, as you see in the subtitle, it's also about human power. So, so to think about what is all, what is our role in all of this, no? Um, so, of course, as we also talked about before, um, we've always had, uh, you know, systems of information and data to make sense of and organize and make our life more efficient. But, but what we see today is, of course, as I also said before, this uh, idea of liquid surveillance, where we have a conversion of everything into data. And this is, of course, something that I'm arguing my book needs a very particular kind of reflection from us and awareness of from So when we talk about data ethics, of course, there's different uh, ways of, of looking at, at, at ethics in connection to technologies we can look at and, and society and, and what role ethics plays. Uh, when I look at data ethics and when I use data ethics, of course, I'm, I'm thinking about it in terms of all what we've been talking about before. So looking at using ethics as a way of understanding the power dynamics that, uh, that are um, the very specific power dy- dynamics of what we call the big data and AI era. So um, right now as i as i said before there's this competition playing out in the, like uh, between different technological systems and different data cultures uh, and 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 styles of scientists and developers and and entrepreneurs but there's not really any open conversation about uh, the power dynamics that we've been talking about until now mm. and so and this is why uh, when i talk about data ethics of power in the book uh, of course, it's very specifically concerned with making visible uh, the distant, different distributions of power um, in this big, big data society that we're talking about. And it's also very constructive in terms of the idea is if we have this open reflection about these power dynamics, then we also have an easier way of creating a foundation for uh, alternative ways of, for example, designing uh, technologies, of creating businesses, policies, uh, with what I, um, and you know, no, not only I, but generally is referred to, as I for, said before, the human-centric distribution of power in, in uh, socio-technical developments. Mm. Um, and so, of course, in the book, what I'm looking at is, is basically, I, I try to put uh, this development and this transformation into a more kind of a broader framework, looking at what, you know, the historical foundation of this, uh, you, the meaning of data, the meaning of information, the meaning of governance in this context. Uh, and then, uh, and then of course, also looking very specifically at these kind of debates that I've been involved in, in particular in the EU, but also in the internet governance environment in general, what were the power dynamics? Uh, how are these different narratives expressed in, 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 in these cultural systems that we're creating? Mm. And so um, yeah. it's, it's basically a call also for uh, a much uh, stronger emphasis on the, on the kind of humanist approach to technologies. Yes, it sounds good. Uh, it sounds very good. And I read the introduction, which reads very nicely, and I'm waiting for the book. So I'm looking forward to reading the whole thing. And I also read some of the other work, which is, uh, yeah, it's, it's great and it's very important. So I uh, highly recommend Thank it. Thank you. Yeah. But if we go to one of the final question here, which is all, always fun because I find that people have their favorite philosophers, mm-hmm. favorite kind of influences, favorite sources, right? And you mentioned him already and kind of Henry Bergson gets the honor of having the opening quote in your introduction. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not too familiar with him, I'm sorry to say, right? So, But I get, a, I get a feeling that you think that I and others should know him, kind of should uh, know mm-hmm. what he says. Could you just briefly explain what the kind of 
why you believe he's important and why you use him and rely on him in some of kind of mm. some of the work you do. Mm. Henry Bergson is a, it's it's interesting because I as you might know my history is that I I I, I did my my first university degree uh, many, many years ago, I think around 20 years ago. And, and I already uh, got very fascinated by Henry Bergson then. And after that, uh, I actually used many of his theories, uh, although he's very, uh, he can be complicated to access. I used him very much as a background understanding of everything I did in my work after that. Mm. That's interesting um, because <clears throat> One thing we have to remember is Henry Bergson was actually world famous. He won Nobel uh, Prize in in literature in the beginning of the 20th century. He was fundamentally he he actually um, he was it said that he was <laughs> he caused some of the first traffic jams in New York because of his famous um, his famous lectures. Uh, so so in that sense, he's really interesting. Yeah. Um, he was at a at a kind of cross point in these kind of different uh, as I said this. Uh, way of uh, as a philosopher he was you know he was very much challenging this mechanistic utilitarian uh, view of uh, for example things like mind and matter and and the reality of things he has this idea of uh, of a of like a constantly moving reality that is never fixed in one point so he uses the the time as a metaphor for um for um, for our reality where he talks about you know the, the the time as he says as an invention so if you think about clock time it moves from one to 12 and we always know the direction it's going in we always know the future of the clock if you understand what i mm. mean mm. and then duration which is uh, is this um, it's difficult to, to explain, but it's um, it's not only human, but it's in between uh, the mind, mind, our mind, and the matter that we're dealing with, uh, and is in constant creative evolution, uh, moving towards an undefined point in the future, and in a sense that is uh, basically um, his concern was with. Uh, his concern is that this utilitarian approach, which I also talked about being very much embedded and, and, and as I see very much an ideal of the society of the destiny machine. Um, his concern was that, that um, when we are so concerned with the present uh, and the future, um, we, we kind of reduce uh, this evolving uh, dynamic human time to an instant. Uh, to that very moment, to that very predetermined uh, future. Mm. And so that's why I find him so incredibly relevant for this moment we're in, because he's, he's very much um, showing us uh, how, uh, you know, what, what, what we're about to lose and what we have been challenged with. Another thing that's really important about Bergson is also that he was fundamental to uh, to um, the the human rights framework, you you probably he was um, he died just in the beginning of the Second World War, but actually he was a Jewish philosopher, and so he actually experienced the experience going to register at a police station in in Paris. He he saw the kind of result of this kind of mechanistic view. He saw this. Um, he experienced uh, the, the, the very strong powers and the problematic powers of one uh, dominant regime of power. Mm. And so he was very involved in, for example, in the League of Nations, uh, which was the predecessor of, of the UN. And he was very involved in the UNESCO, the development of UNESCO, and had a very... It is said that uh, John Humphrey, who created, who drafted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, that he was very inspired by uh, Henry Bergson. So it all comes together in this very practical, but very philosophical understanding of uh, what it means, what, what, what is uh, maybe, what is our last stand as humans? It is a very um, dynamic, uh, undefined, uh, uh, unpredictability of, of, of development, no? Mm. 
Definitely. And then this was a good sell. I think I, I need to read some books. But it's also kind of quite fascinating to see uh, the different ways that lead to Rome, if you will, because I find myself agreeing with uh, practically everything you say. I have the same concerns and I'm uh, right about the same things. But me as an undergraduate, I was thoroughly fascinated by Thomas Hobbes, right, which is the kind of mechanistic, power-oriented kind of political philosopher, much maligned, but also kind of, for me, very useful. Mm. So there, there are kind of a lot of different paths towards different, um, yeah, t- towards the same phenomena, I think. So it's interesting. Yeah. And I think, uh, I hope it doesn't kind of shape everything I do, but it's kind of, it's interesting to see how these kind of influences shapes what one does later on in academic life. So, mm. yeah. I, I mean, I, th- I think uh, that's why um, uh, that's why I was mentioning um, that Baxson had been kind of influential in my work, because I think that at the moment we're also we need to also think about how we implement human rights, uh, for example, and and this kind of mechanistic uh, view of uh, of, for example, um, protecting and implementing our human rights. We have to think about. A more, and that's what Baxson is, is very strong in this idea of, um, he doesn't talk about culture, but I use it to think about culture in general, these kind of cultural processes um, that shape, uh, that, that, that makes ethical practice possible. No? Mm. So he very much talks about two different, and that's very important, he talks about two different types of morality, for example, which is the social morality and the human morality. Mm. The social morality is the one where we're just uh, following requirements and obligations, but we we don't really live that kind of uh, morality, while the human morality is the one that would live the inclusive one, that the one that is not targeted towards, for example, let's mm. protect the nation, let's protect the family, makes it's it's inclusive uh, it's more uh, humane in some sense mm. and and i think it's relevant because when we look at for example things like human rights for example i just saw a political party in denmark that is now talking about that uh, they want to uh, they want denmark to sign out of the, of the convention of human rights i think mm. it's in, in, incredible that it's even possible to talk about that to put those kind of things aside and that's because we come to a point where we can say, yeah, well, there's moments where we need to put this aside. Spell, same, all these arguments every time you have a pandemic. Now we're in the middle of a pandemic and we have several times where we see um, we're in a crisis situation. We can put uh, this idea. Um, I mean, I've seen people, uh, very strong advocates of privacy, uh, uh, thinking that, you know, it's okay. We put it aside because we need to, uh, you know, we need to contact trace and trace everything we do just to protect, uh, you know. So, so it's a very good example of, and he, Bergson, of course, understood because he was in the middle of the, of uh, in between two world wars, no? So. Mm. Yeah. yeah, this is great. And this also connects to kind of when we're talking about technology, ethics and morality and philosophy is kind of deeply relevant and always necessary, which is kind mm. of, uh, yeah, very obvious here. So this is great. Yeah. But uh, I've already taken up too much of your time, but this has been great. And I, yeah, there are many issues to pursue <laughs> down the line. I really enjoyed I this time. conversation. It's rare that you get time when you're working practically and not only in academia. The, you get time to have these kind of conversations. It's, it's yeah. very nice. Yeah, yeah likewise. And important, actually. It's incredibly yeah, it important that we have these reflections uh, mm. uh, generally to understand uh, where we're going. No? Yeah, definitely. So thank you very much for your time. And thank you for providing some faith in human agency and humanistic use of technology and for engaging in politics and kind of trying to make things better. So yeah, thank you for taking the time and thank you for your work. Thank you. Thank you for your work. Thank you for listening to TDS Lowdown. You can find more episodes at tdslowdown.com. Follow the podcast on TDS Lowdown on Twitter. Please remember to subscribe and share. Thank you.